Good morning, church. Good morning. If you'll make your way into the worship center, we're going to begin our time of worship. And if you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to begin in just a moment to join our voices together. Good morning. Good morning. We're seeing these words. Now we're in this series on spiritual warfare. We're going to proclaim these truths as we enter in our time. We're going to proclaim that nothing formed against me shall stand because you hold the whole world in your hands. I'm holding on to your promise. You are faithful. You are faithful. So let's sing together. And nothing formed against me shall stand. You hold the whole world in your
everyone's doing well today. Uh, my name is Tanner. I am a junior at ACU studying youth family ministry. I am from Friendswood, Texas, and this is my third year attending Highlands. Um, if you are a college student here today, or you are someone who wants to get plugged in to the college ministry, please, after service, I really encourage you to find myself, find Mason, find Jen, find Robert, find someone, please, and get plugged in because we are excited to have you here. We are thankful you're here and we want you to be involved. So as we prep our hearts for worship, I'm just gonna read some scripture. Philippians 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's continue to stand as we worship today.
earth gives way for the risen one is overcome and for every fear there's an empty grave for the risen one is overcome we will not be
Psalm 48, 9 says, we ponder your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. We just got done thanking Jesus for all he's done for us. So just take a moment. Find the gratitude in your life for the ways Jesus has brought you healing, has helped you learn a deeper level of love and receive love. Just take a moment just between you and God before we continue to worship.
specific prayer and then we will all say Lord hear our prayer the screen will prompt you Lord God we pray for your restoration of Highland especially for those among us who are in pain who are sick and for the families of those who would walk alongside them we pray for Tina and Tim Johnston for Darla Swaim and for Joyce Doyle we also pray a prayer of thanks for the life of Maria White who passed away this week Maria touched so many in this church and outside, and we ask that you, God, would be with her family in the way that only you can. Lord, we pray for the good work done through Grace Fellowship and Freedom Fellowship, where we and our neighbors together get to experience your restoration in Abilene. Give them plenty of help, give them strength, and let everyone who walks through their doors experience the movement of your spirit and the goodness of your blessings. Thank you for the gift of community in our city. Lord, hear our prayer. Finally, Lord, we pray for the restoration of the world you created and for our missionaries as they bring your flourishing wherever they are. We pray specifically for the ministries of Antonor and Phyllis Goncalves and Mark and Ali Kaiser in Itu, 
and Ryan and Ning Binkley in Chiang Mai. Lord, hear our prayer. Now please join me in praying the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. church. Welcome to the table. In just a moment, the communion trays will be passed. There are two cups stacked together. One holds the bread and the other the juice. Hold them until all have been served and we'll take communion together. Today, I invite you to the table with a moment of imagination in the spirit of our curious creator. I recently read a book, book called The Book of Longings by Sue Monk Kidd a historical fiction book about a young woman who lives in the time and place of Jesus, about her story learning the truths of the love and power of God through the eyes of her dear friend, the Messiah. So I'm an English major, so just bear with me. Today, we are going to imagine ourselves in the place of Anna, our protagonist. Feel free to close your eyes if that helps your imagination juices to flow. Think of yourself in your late teens. If you want, imagine you're walking in a lonely garden outside of Nazareth, and it's only the first century. Similar to in our scripture reading for today, a humble man named Jesus has gone wandering alone. This is what you talk about. I said, you speak as if God's kingdom is not just a place on earth, but a place inside us. He answered, so I believe. I respond, then does God live in the temple in Jerusalem or in this kingdom inside us? Can God not live in both, he asked. I felt a sudden blazing up inside and threw my arms open. Can God not live everywhere? His laughter resounded off the cave walls, but his smile lingered on me. I think for you too, God cannot be contained. We come to the table this morning, acknowledging the God that resides within us and all around us, the God of everlasting life and mercy, of benevolent goodness and grace, The bread and the cup we share today represents our spiritual union with God and helps us experience the paradox of divine intimacy. Servers, please come forward at this time.
God who resides in the temples of Jerusalem, who works in this auditorium in Abilene, who moves in the hidden spaces of our hearts. Remind us today that you cannot be contained. We desire to receive you, to welcome you in with the partaking of the bread and the cup of your son's body and blood. Through Jesus' sacrifice, who left behind heaven's throne to build it here inside, we have complete union with you. Thank you for his life and his death. Amen. The body of Christ. The blood of Christ. The Lord be with you. of Bright, 
Buenos dias. My name is Robert Lopez de Castilla. I'm the university minister here at Highland Church of Christ. So good to see you all today. It's now time for His Kids Worship. So kids ages three to kindergarten can go through these doors and head that way. The first announcement I have for you today is about our Connect or Connection Lunch. So if you are maybe new to Highland or maybe you've been at Highland for a while but want to get to know more about Highland, you should definitely check out this Connection Lunch. You can see the information there on the screen. It's Sunday, September 24th, following the second service. My wife and I actually went to this lunch when we were trying to get connected to Highland, and it was a great opportunity for us to meet more people, and they had really good paninis, so maybe they'll have that again. Uh, the next announcement I want to make for you is the men's gathering is actually this Wednesday at 6.45 p.m., so if you are looking to maybe get some dinner, meet some more men at Highland, and go to a Bible study, I think this would be an awesome place to get plugged in. I started here July 1st as a university minister, and so many men, elders and other dads like me, have been reaching out to me in this time, and it's been a really welcoming presence. So if you're considering it, I would definitely encourage you to go. We also have an event coming up next Sunday from 6.30 to 7 p.m., which is the Highland Hymn Sing. So you can expect some ice cream at this. We'll be singing some hymns, and anyone is welcome to join us for this event. Last Sunday, I did the announcements and shared with you a little bit about Highland's vision for restoring Highland, restoring Abilene, and restoring the world. And I shared about how our college ministry sends students all across the world after they graduate. But then, after our second service, I was reminded that we hosted a lunch. Many of the students there were new students to Abilene. And I remembered that students actually come from all over the world to us. We served 120 students lunch in the gym this past Sunday. And because of your generous donations, we were able to do that. We had fajitas and chips and salsa and guacamole, and I think that many students felt welcome, like they could now call this place home, especially in such a big transition for most of them. So I wanted to share that with you so that you know how your donations impact my ministry and many more ways here at Highland. But if you'd like to donate, you can do so three ways, and those three ways are there on the screen. You can text to give, give online, or uh, do a cash or check and drop it off in the box as you leave. Thank you, and let's prepare our hearts to hear the word of the Lord. I'll be reading from Matthew 4. If you're able, please stand for the reading of the word. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he was famished. The tempter came to him and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread by bread by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, 
Again, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him and suddenly angels came and waited on him. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, Highland. Good to have you here today. My name's Shane Hughes. I'm one of the ministers here at this church. Uh, we're grateful to have you. <clears throat> so there's this interesting perspective that comes from the Old Testament and the New Testament regarding the word Satan. Because that word first shows up, uh, at least the part I want to talk about, is, is in Job. And it's not Satan like a name. It's the Satan. The definite article is in front of it in Job. It's not, a, it's not a person, it's a position. And Job gives us pause because it, makes us, it forces us to ask some questions about what is the nature of the Satan. Because it seems to be in the story of Job that the Satan shows up in, in front of God's divine counsel. He's in the throne room of heaven, which, which kind of contracts some of the pop culture understandings we have of the devil which have been formed more by Dante's Inferno, maybe, than Scripture at times. Because most of us would imagine that God has kind of a throne room that exists in heaven. It's kind of this beautiful sky palace. And then the devil has this other throne room that's underground, full of lava and, and sulfur. And that's where the devil rules, and this is where God rules. But that's not the story. I wonder why God permits the Satan presence in the throne room of heaven. Not only does the Satan have a presence, he's allowed to speak. Not only is he allowed to speak, he challenges God. If you were to translate the Satan, one way to do that would be to call it the accuser. One way to think of that, about that might be that, that the Satan is the one that calls God into account, questions God's policies, questions God's actions. Is this truly the best thing, the right thing, the, the perfect thing? After all, how, how is God vindicated unless there's somebody to ask the question, is, is this truly the best? And that's exactly what the Satan does in this story. He says, look, God says, have you considered my servant Job? There's nobody like him. And the Satan says, of course you love Job. Of course Job loves you. You've given him everything. You've given him children, and you've given him gorgeous houses, and you've given him uh, livestock and property. Of course that guy loves you. And really, I think the story of Job is a long discourse on the question of does obedience truly lead to blessing and does disobedience lead to cursing? Because sometimes when we get it backwards, we get God twisted. The Satan says, take it all away from him and then let's see what your favorite son does. And then the rest of the story of Job is this beautiful poem that vindicates not only Job, but also the righteousness of God. Thus, Satan, between the story of Job and 
Matthew, where we are, loses the definite article and becomes a person that embodies that challenging discourse. But the, the role, the purpose, is the same. I'm excited you're here today because I think we have something important to learn about the nature of God and the nature of evil and maybe the nature of ourselves. Let's pray, please. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for this place and these people. I'm grateful that you've gathered us together, even though we couldn't be more different from one another in so many ways, that your son Jesus draws us in, that the blood of Christ washes our, our uniqueness, makes it magnified and beautiful, a million different colors that look like your son. I'm grateful for all of the gifts that you've given this place, all of the people with so many gifts and talents. And Father, now, as we turn our hearts and our minds to your word, I pray you pour through me the gift of preaching, that I might speak your truth and love to these, your people. It's together that the church says, amen. There was something interesting that the Russian KGB learned in the 1980s and 90s. This was kind of the, the tail end and also kind of the height of the Cold War. KGB was tasked, with the fa- with the ta- was tasked with the action of spreading disinformation throughout the West to just cons- to sow chaos and confusion using lies. And what the KGB quickly learned is it does not matter the quality of the lie. It does not even matter if the lie is immediately believable. All you have to do is increase the volume of the lie through frequency and duration loud enough it will overwhelm the truth. If you create enough noise, the signal will be lost. And so the KGB focused pretty tightly on just spreading as many lies as possible as they possibly could to the West to, to break up the unity of the West, to, to create wedges between nations and within governments and peoples. Although the Cold War was over, Russia did not give up on that tactic. On the eve of the 2016 election, uh, the Russian disinformation groups were doing the exact same thing. In fact, to, to sow chaos into the American culture, they organized two protest rallies, and you may have seen this in the news. It happened in Houston, Texas. And so for about a year ahead of time, they formed two groups. One was called the Heart of Texas, which was a Russian-controlled Facebook group. And they organized a rally called Stop Islamification of Texas. And they had a gathering and a following, and and they shared a lot of memes, and they shared a lot of articles. Some of those articles were real, but most of them were, were made up. They didn't come from real news organizations. They just came from fictitious environments. There was a separate Russia sponsored group called the United Muslims of America. Again, no Americans in the creation of this group. They advertised a Save Islamic Knowledge Rally. They had done the same thing. About 18 months earlier, began forming some groups around memes and ideas and all these other, all these other deals to build a following behind that group. And so these two groups organized competing rallies in the same place at the same time in Houston. And when those two rallies occurred... No one in charge appeared because nobody in charge lived in America. They were all in Russia. In fact, all they wanted was both sides to feel angry about the fact that there was an opposing rally. It was completely successful. 
And later research showed that it only cost the Russian government about $200 in Facebook ads to pull it off. You don't actually have to point to the untruth. You just have to sow enough noise and people will believe it. And I, I have this sense, I, want, I have this thesis that I want to propose today. That Christians should be the most immune to this kind of propaganda. That Christians should be the best at seeing through these kind of lies, despite the volume, despite the proliferation, that we should be the best at, this, at, at seeing through this because we are practiced in the fight of discerning truth already. Last week, we spoke, focused on how the the devil is described in the Bible, especially by Jesus himself and by early first century authors in the New Testament. We saw that the devil's main means of wreaking havoc is lies. And a way to combat the lies of the devil is to do what Paul says, take captive every thought. Examine if they might be true to who God is. Or if it's a lie we've been tricked into believing, then replace the lies with words from Scripture. And, and last week, I left you with some homework, and I hope you were able to carry out the homework last week. I hope you had a note open where you were mindful of the lies uh, that you were hearing throughout your week. You kind of kept a log of these negative thoughts, and you wrote them down, and you began to look for kind of reoccurring patterns that, that the lie that you hear most frequently may be the one that you're susceptible to. Because those patterns of negative thoughts begin to sound like the truth because we think about them so often. They might reflect how you feel, but that's not necessarily what is true. And then I wanted you to try to think of some scripture that might expose those lies for what they are. And we talked about last week my friend Jacob that has been doing this process with me. How often he attempted, he was to gripe about how he didn't have enough. He lived in the lies of lack. He said to himself, I don't have enough help. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough patience. But he, he kept reminding himself that, that those lies aren't necessarily true. And he, and he used scripture. He used Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Now, I want to point out something that I think is important, that just because you have a negative thought doesn't mean it's necessarily false. For instance, I may have been thinking last week, oh man, I'm not very good at basketball. That's a negative thought. And would I recognize the negative thought? I would say to myself, that's a lie. I must actually be good at basketball. But if we were to live in reality, what we would discover is, I don't jump very high, I don't shoot very well, and I can dribble if I'm by myself and no one's watching. That's about as far as it goes. So sometimes reality is, the truth is, you're not good at something. You might think to yourself, I'm not actually good at my job. Oh no, that's a lie, I'm great at my job. Uh, you're not that great. But maybe the reason why you feel like you're not very good at your job, maybe therein lies the lie. Maybe the lies are the excuses why you can't do any better or why you won't change. And, and, I, and I think there's a difference between 
kind of what, what our culture is going to say to us, which is everyone is strong and healthy and above average in intelligence, right? Like all of those things are true, and, and, and that's not reality. And if we, put our, if we put our weight on that truth, that I'm good at basketball, I think we're going to be disappointed. The truths that we hang on to are not things that make us feel better. The truths that we hang on to are what God tells us that we are. You are a son or a daughter of God. So we examine each thought, see if it reflects God's truth or the devil's lies. There's a man in the 4th century, um, Vagarius of Ponticus, and he was this really smart and famous uh, person that lived there. He's a theologian, and he, and he was friends with lots of the church fathers and bishops and thought leaders at, the enti- at that time. But he gave all that up, his, his life working in the church, and spent the last decade and a half of his life dedicated to spiritual formation. And so he goes out into the desert to be with a, a small order of monks to work on this book that he wanted to write. And he developed a reputation, even out in the desert, as someone who uh, developed some useful practices for overcoming the devil. And so people would go out to, to find him and seek his counsel and tutoring. And his methods got written down and compiled in a book called, and this is the most awesome theology book I've ever heard, Talking Back, a Monastic Handbook for Combating Demons. He noticed the negative thoughts, and he began to combat them with words of Scripture. And he called those words of Scripture comebacks. It was the response that he would offer to those lies of the evil one. Kind of the, and I have an experience with comebacks. I think you learned this when you went to public school, right? Somebody would say something to you, and you better had something to say back. You needed a retort. You needed a response. The atomic weapon of comebacks, of course, was an insult to somebody else's mother, at which point the fight escalated from words to fists. And I learned very quickly, you don't mock somebody else's mother. But here are some examples that Vigarius came up with. Against the thought that is stirred up by anger and wants to revile brothers, you listen to Exodus 23. You shall abstain from every unjust word. Against the soul that loves glory from human beings more than the knowledge of Christ, or pride is another way to think about that. All the flesh is grass. All the glory of humanity is like a flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. The words of Isaiah. And he gets really personal in this book, and this book has been translated into English. You can buy it and read it, and it it is fascinating to see how he directly connects the thought or the feeling to the word of Scripture. And there's, there's, there's hundreds of these comebacks. And he, and he would get incredibly personal. And he talked about inner thoughts that I think most people don't feel comfortable re- revealing, like lust. Against the soul that is tempted by foul thoughts of fornication and does not want to keep vigil and pray, think of the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, 26. Stay awake and pray that you may not come into temptation. His handbook is very personal and it's very honest and very thorough. And it demonstrates kind of the rigorous understanding of his own thoughts. But he didn't come up with this practice. He didn't develop this method. He learned it from Jesus. Which is the story that we come to in Matthew 5 today. 
The devil is tempting Jesus out in the wilderness, but Jesus uses Scripture in his comebacks. I find it fascinating. Human beings, by default, will rely on truth. We assume that someone is telling us the truth unless there is sufficient evidence to the contrary. You have to be taught, you have to be trained to doubt as a first reflex because we will uh, begin by believing. And so lies play against our innate desires because the best lies appeal to the things that we want and emotional appeals are the best ones there are. We sin because we believe a lie about what will make us happy. And so here in Matthew 4, we see Jesus using the truth of Scripture to combat the lies of the devil. And it's impossible not to miss the, the parallel that Matthew wants to draw. That Jesus goes out into the wilderness, and in the story of Israel, there's a time when Israel goes to the wilderness, and while Israel is in the wilderness, they are tested and they fail. And so in some ways, as Jesus is going out to be tested in the wilderness, he's, he's demonstrating that he is the new Israel. He is the new Moses of sorts. But if we were to learn a couple things from the devil's lies from this story, I think one of the things we would notice is that the, de- the lie is typically subtle. The evil one makes a very clever move. He says, if you are the Son of God. He says this twice to Jesus, if you are the Son of God. Jesus absolutely knows who he is. God knows absolutely who Jesus is. The devil knows exactly who Jesus is, but still he puts that question mark in there, if you are the Son of God. He tries to gently cast doubt on the truth of Jesus' identity and goad Jesus into proving himself on the devil's terms, but Jesus doesn't take the bait. I think the second thing that we notice is the lie he will try to get you to believe is connected to something that you might already want. Turn these stones into bread. Jesus has been fasting 40 days, which is kind of a a long period of time, intentionally not eating so that he would focus on prayer and increase trust in the Lord. We're going to talk more about fasting in a couple of weeks. But the lie is connected to a desire that you already have is important to know. It doesn't make sense for the deceiver to get you to believe some sort of unimportant lie, like, for example, the capital of Washington is Seattle. Everybody knows this. It sounds true, except it isn't. The capital of Washington is Olympia. Olympia. First service didn't know that, but nobody cares. I mean, nobody nobody cares who the capital of Washington is anyway, right? I mean, what difference does it make if it's Seattle or Olympia? Because that doesn't derail your life unless you end up on Jeopardy and make that kind of mistake. I mean, nobody cares. The, The lies will have more likely have some sort of subtle attack on your identity. You don't measure up. Can you really trust these people? It's only going to be a matter of time before you fail and are exposed. Or playing to some existing desire. You deserve the thing you want. You have every right to stay mad with that person. Go ahead and take it because no one will know. And I, I think these strategies are incredibly effective at derailing relationships, of creating that wedge between members of God's kingdom, of dividing and conquering. 
But Jesus has the comeback, and he responds to the devil all three times with words from Scripture. He does it with Deuteronomy 8, and then Deuteronomy 6, and Deuteronomy 6 again. And these are the words that God spoke to Israel when they were in the wilderness. Man shall not live alone by bread, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. A translation might be Jesus saying, God is my sustenance, I'm good. Or don't put your Lord the God to the test, which is exactly what the devil's trying to do. He exposes the devil's tactic. The last one is worship the Lord and serve him only. And I don't think that when Jesus is in the desert being tested. I don't think he had like his scrolls with him. I don't think he had his, his Bible with him. I, I don't think he had access to BibleGateway.com where he could just do a quick search to find out the right response. I think the only way that, that Jesus was prepared to meet this kind of testing is that he had the words of God written in his heart. And we talk a lot here about the memorization of Scripture or the fluency of Scripture, that when something is embedded in your heart, no one can take it from you. And it is ready for you. And it has been in my life a hundred different times where I've had to take the time to memorize Scripture that it has come to me in the most unlikely environment and it's just what that situation needed. It's just what somebody needed to hear. And the only reason I had it right then is because it was written on my heart. I think if we're going to be good disciples of Jesus, then we need to have the fluency of Scripture. And I've, the best definition of fluency, I love this definition, it's not when you think in another language, it's when you dream in another language. I think the second thing this text shows us is that prayer is more than just words. Prayer is meditation. The, my favorite time of day is right after, it's immediately after my kids get on their pajamas. Um, because it means the day's almost over. But it also means uh, it's time to pray. And we read stories. It's time to get in bed. And we'll, we'll spend a little time praying. And my, my, one of my favorite moments in that is when my kids fall asleep during the prayer. It means they've had a good day, but it also means they fell asleep talking to God. I think there's something beautiful in that. And we have a long laundry list of people that we pray for in our family, and we pray for animals, and we pray for friends at school, and we pray for all sorts of people. And, and it's very exciting to me to hear when they think of new things to pray about. But if I, if I teach them that that is the end of their prayer, then I think I've made a mistake. And if that's the end of our prayer, the laundry list of things that we ask God for, I think that's great. I think that's fine. I think God is excited and happy to hear that. But I, I think that means that we've only had of a seven-year-old development of prayer. And there's more that God is offering us. Jesus spent a season in the wilderness. It's just him and God. And I don't think it was Jesus just saying, and, and pray for mom and pray for dad and pray for grandma and pray for grandpa. I think it was listening. I think it was waiting to hear what God had to say to us. There's something about prayer when words cease. When we get to the edge of everything that we need to say, there's a whole new level of intimacy with God. I think our fluency with Scripture and us beginning to see prayer as meditation gives us the tools of spiritual practice to discern truth from lie. 
to take captive every thought, to hold it up to God and, and see if it's legit or not. So for the last couple of weeks, we've, I wanted to challenge you to, to do some homework, to take something home with you. Last week, I asked you to examine the thought pattern and, and find the, the frequency and the currency of, of your lies. This week, I want you to do something a little bit different. I want you to find a way and a place to embed yourself in the truth. And I think Scripture is a great place to start and a great place to end, but there's more places where we can experience the truth of who God says we are. You are a son and a daughter of the King. You are saved by grace through faith. It is Jesus' blood that makes you right before God. It's not because you're smart or because you're beautiful or because you're effective. You matter because you are His. So I want to end today with a little bit of poetry, but I want to encourage you to take this with you, to find a way to embed yourself in, in the truth this week. So what I'm going to do is I'm taking a, a Lauren Daigle song. It's not Dangle, by the way. I did that in first. Lauren Daigle. And... Um, I'm going to put it on repeat. It's going to be the first song that I hear when I get in the car, every time I get in the car, when I'm going to drive this week. Let me share this poetry with you, and then we'll stand for our benediction. You say I am loved when I can't feel a thing. You say I'm strong when I think I'm weak. And you say I'm held when I am falling short. And when I don't belong, you say... I am yours. Would you please stand? Highland, may you embed yourself in the truth this week. May you find the courage to combat the lies of the evil one. May you be filled with God's presence and go in peace. Remind me once again just who I am because I need